three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Agency Podcast. We are at Agency World Headquarters in Toronto, <laughs> Canada. Yep, I'm here too, believe it or not. Made it. Been here for a few days. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. Doing good. I, I tell you, I got a story for you. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. Do you remember back, for people of our generations, they will remember a TV show. I think it used to come on Sundays. It was starring Marlon Perkins. It was called Mutual of Omaha's right. Wild Kingdom. Yes, yes. It came well, on after Disney or something. That's like. us. Yeah. So I, I'm going to tell you what <laughs> happened here. First, you have to understand uh, our house is one of those houses that has uh, a built-in single car garage uh, on it. And long before we ever bought the house and moved here, uh, somebody insulated and drywalled in the garage okay. such that you can't open the front garage door anywhere. It's a placebo garage door. Right. You can only go in and out the back. And they insulated it because I think the family who lived here had kids who had a band. <laughs> and they, I think they thought if they stuck them in the garage, made it bearable, and um, insulated it to, to hold the sound in, uh, it would not disturb anybody. So that's been my painting studio for a long time. Um, but these days, I often use it for a place to go late at night to practice the fiddle um, that doesn't disturb anybody. And so uh, Bonnie, uh, our our young uh, dog, comes out there with me. And one night we were coming in and I, op I opened the door and, and you have to walk about, what is it, maybe 40 feet? Yeah. You have to walk well, around a deck, up oh, a ramp. True. There's a ramp, the and, patio. Uh, around the patio and then, and then in the house. So I opened the, I opened the door of the studio and... Fortunately, I saw the possum first, <laughs> and I immediately grabbed onto Bonnie's leash oh, with two hands awesome. and and held on for dear life. Because when Bonnie saw the uh, the the possum, her reaction was, "Don't worry, Dad, I'll just match it for you." <laughs> and and she tore towards the possum, and I'm hanging on for dear life. So after that, it got so that Bonnie would be sleeping while I would be playing fiddle, and when I'm almost ready to go in. <laughs> While she's sleeping, I'd open the door a crack to see if the uh, possum was uh, out there. It's a possum? It's a possum. And, <laughs> and then one night, a few nights ago. I love them. I I opened the I opened the door a crack. Mm -hmm. And what was there six feet from the door of the studio? <laughs> Mr. Skunk. Oh God. And Mr. Skunk was oh. there. He was grubbing for grubs. <laughs> yeah, I bet they're delicious over there. And in the past, when we had George, we knew Mr. Skunk was around. Uh -huh. And I would clap my hands and I would go, Skunky, be gone. And the Skunky would waddle, waddle away. Right. Was, well, I'm going, Skunky, be gone. It's one in the morning. Skunky, be gone, be gone. He knows you're fooling me. And, and he looks up like, screw you. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. There's good grub in here. So I tried Must clapping my so hands. Good. And... You know, making gestures, and he just kind of looked at me and went back to work. Mm -hmm. So I realized we're being held hostage by a skunk because the way uh, the way everything is the way it was it's configured, I'd have to pass the skunk with the the deck on the right, yeah. and the skunk oh, on no, the left, and we would get sprayed for sure. For with, sure. with Bonnie, absolutely for, for sure. sure. So I did the only reasonable thing to do. I called mm -hmm. Sheila. 
What a good who's girl. at this point in bed. Yeah. And she wakes up. She thinks it's like a duck cleaning call or something. <laughs> and, and she's, what's going on? Are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm being held hostage by a skunk. And she looks up to the bedroom window and she sees the skunk. But what she saw that I didn't see is five feet away from the skunk is the possum. <laughs> <laughs> and the two of her out there growing goats. In I didn't know they got along. It's the skunky possum yeah, game. Wow. So Sheila's now calling down from the bedroom, skunky, be gone. Skunky, be gone. And he's, of course, ignoring her. Yes. Just like he, it's too delicious. Exactly. Um, so she can't get rid of him. I can't get rid oh of him. But she's giving me the play-by-play. -play. Mm -hmm. He's walking closer to the studio. He's right in front of the Ooh. studio door now. So I'm now held hostage, me and Bonnie. Mm -hmm. It was about 45 minutes till Mr. Skunk waddled away. Oh, I didn't care about Mr. Claus. And did Ms. she Boss. wait the whole time? No, she went. No. Okay. <laughs> she said, have a good night. Yeah. <laughs> so finally we were able to come in. But now, of course, Bonnie is looking for, she's looking yeah. for skunks and possums. She wants to smell come them. In. Oh, yeah. So then normally in the morning, what I do is I'll get up and I'll come downstairs. And the first thing I'll do is I'll let Bonnie out in the backyard. So mm -hmm. if she has to pee, mm -hmm. she can go out in the backyard to pee. Mm -hmm. um, so long as it's now light outside. Mm -hmm. Because if it's dark outside, then we think skunkies around. Right. Well, this morning, <laughs> I look out the back window. I'm just about to open the door and let her out. And there, in front of the studio door, is the skunk. In broad He's, daylight. In broad daylight. He's still working. <laughs> well... Bonnie walks up to the door and she sees the skunk mm -hmm. and she goes, Wow. Wow. Was she going to run? Oh, she's bashing against the door. Oh, oh my God. She wanted to dispatch that skunk for us right away. She was really freaked out by the skunk. Oh God. Well, I want to say right now, Bonnie is sitting here under the desk where we're recording and she's letting me pet her. It's so great. She's a, you really lucked out. She is a darling sweetheart. Yes. Yes, she, is she a really pie. is a sweetie pie. I mean, 86% sweetie pie. The results are in. <laughs> <laughs> On her DNA test. That's right. Very nice. Well, while you were chasing skunks, well, I've been here with the fam. This is the first time I've seen you in a few days since I got here, hanging out with the fam. Stag was in town. We had some good times. And then yesterday, I went to Comic-Con with my young ward. <laughs> And he led me through Comic-Con. First of all, we got there at about 9.30. Thank God. We survived. We survived. I took a photo empty. And then I, all I cared about was like, let's go look for food. We finally got to the, we, look, we, we did some shopping. People started to, there was a huge lineup, tons of costumes. Uh, we made our way around several uh, booths. And then it was like time to eat. So we ate about 11.30. Hot dog, pizza, Icy's. Do you know what an Icy is? Mm. It's Coca-Cola company owns a polar bear not the polar bear for Coke, different kind of polar bear. He's cartoon and it's a red, white, and blue cup with um, Frosty. So it's really like a shaved ice drink. Oh, okay. Yeah, like a like at 7-Eleven. Sure. With a, you know, garish blue color. Sure, it's like, a, it's like you know, it's like a trailer park yeah, smoothie. Yeah, it just turns your whole tongue like blue. Gotcha. And, um, or whatever color you're drinking. And we we beat the rush on the food. And then we just spent... I think to swing. I need to apologize to the good folks who live in trailer yes. parks. Oh, yeah. I, I really... I really <laughs> didn't mean to trash trailer parks. I take no. it back. I would love to have a trailer on a piece of land. Yeah. Oh, I, I, that would be amazing. I wouldn't even bother building a house. Too much work. Just some electricity and some Wi-Fi. Go to that trailer. And then you can get those big canopies that go outside. You can have a whole room outside and a gazebo. If I had a trailer, I would <laughs> want one that looked like Jim Rockford's. Oh, God. Isn't that the best? 
Is that the, on the beach, right? On the beach. Oh my god, that is the best. I was watching some of those episodes. And, and, and it looks it. it looks ramshackle. Oh, it does. And every time he goes outside, two guys drive up in like an Oldsmobile or an LTD, and they're <laughs> wearing suits. They be terrible. I didn't know there was so much violence in the three-piece suit. <laughs> yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and then it got so crowded, we were literally like barely moving my feet to walk shuffle it was a shuffle but tons of great costumes and um i bought a mystery box so a big trend right now is these mystery boxes or mystery bags and you pick the show or theme you like like if you like thor it's a thor mystery box i got full metal alchemist um it's an anime from 2000 till 2010 and then you don't know what's in it so you open it up and it's some swag like maybe a little mini poster or some pins. I got pins. I was going to bring it to my Stuff car. Stuff maybe a little hard to move, but if you like the you. theme, yes. it's fun. I meant to bring it in here and have you look at it and, and read it out. I forgot. It's in the trunk of my car. And um, so that was a lot of fun. And, and um, uh, we saw a lot of weapons and swords and axes that are all part of uh, buying costumes. And really a lot Costumes of are a super big thing at the yeah. Comic-Con. Yeah. The last time I was at a Comic-Con, Rob Ford was our mayor. And I remember this because Hulk Hogan came to the uh, Comic-Con because there's really good money in charging like 20 bucks an autograph. Right, right. And We could do that next year. Yeah, I'm sure we could. Yeah, bring your uh, graphic novels. Yeah. I'll do some zines. There you go. We and uh, we'll just draw while we're sitting there. The, the okay. truth I didn't is, interrupt The you. truth is that after a day at the Comic-Con, all I could think of was beer. Yeah. I just had to like just yeah. get me out of here. Was, that would have been a refreshing. It was just overwhelming for me. Yeah. It was too many people in superhero costumes. I, I couldn't <laughs> cope with it. That's probably even on a good day, you could probably only handle half of that amount of people. And it was I was there um uh with one of my work colleagues and we had uh the company I was working for had something there. Oh, and yeah. we were, uh, you got to pay to be there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we had paid to be there. Just, hey, um I saw the Oscars. Took about two days, but I finally saw the Oscars. Oh, right on. Yeah, I didn't see them. I drove here on the, the day after they were aired. I, I watched five minutes of the Oscars. <laughs> I turned it on. Actually, I fell asleep. Yeah. And turned it on after I woke up. And <laughs> um, there was uh, someone in a bad bear costume in the yes. in the seats yep. um, trying to be funny. And it yep. wasn't very funny. And then I turned it off. Yeah, okay. And that was that. Yeah. Well, we called it Everything Everywhere All at Once. Yes, we did. Told you so. And Great speeches, and I was so happy for Michelle Yo, who said, "Never give up. You're you're never too old. Just keep doing your stuff." And and so did her co-star. They've and, both been in. And many, I have to love films. that Jamie Lee Curtis got an Oscar for playing a character that has hot dogs for fingers. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. She didn't get it for a fish called Wanda, which would have been maybe a good idea. But she's been in so many. All of those three actors have been in so much. I can pretty much movies. watch her. It's like Sandra Bullock. I, I can watch J.B. Lee Curtis in almost anything. Your two favorite actresses. Yeah, that's like me with Keanu. I don't care. I just love it. My Keanu's in something. The only thing that was wrong with those Oscars was he wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the pacing. I like the speed. I thought it was a good show. I enjoyed it very, very much. They kind of finished on time, which was... I think they did. Yeah. I think that they um, they realized that, that people lost patience for this five-hour show. Yeah, business. well, it's only four hours now. So that's still an awfully long time. Yeah. Yes. Well, so that was pretty good. I, I'm sure I had something else brilliant I wanted to say about the Oscars, but I can't think of what it was right now. I watched, caught up on some shrinking. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what do you want to say about shrinking? Because you didn't say it all this time because I was behind. Well, what I want to say is that it's 
so much an adult comedy. Mm -hmm. And by that, I don't mean adult like racing. I mean, adult like it's actually made for intelligent adults and it's got characters that are developed. Um, Definitely. And I wasn't so sure the first couple of episodes, but it just gets better it's really i find it funny and interesting yeah and yeah uh, I, lo- I love the characters I and the actors too. and you know who's grown on me now is jessica williams his one of his co-therapists that works with him and th- uh with um jason siegel is the main actor and harrison ford but they work in an office of counseling and oh jessica is williams, the therapist that, that yes. they sleep together yes Yes. And I've really grown and she has some of the best lines and attitudes. And I'm yes, really doesn't she? for her she's, character. I know she's, she's a great character. She really is. She's and, refreshing um, and I, funny. Yeah. And, honest. yeah. and I mean, Jason Siegel is insanely talented. I think it's really good that he has this role that's showing off a bit more of what he can do. What, what else has he been well, in? He was I've seen a great TV show, a fantastically hilarious show called How I Met Your Mother. Oh, I never he saw He played that. Marshall and he was really, really good in it. And then he was in. Um, Dating Sarah? I forgot the name of it. Um, we're breaking up with Sarah. Something like that. Oh, I forgot the name of it. There's a great little comedy where he goes to this island or a resort and his girlfriend dumps him and he goes through crisis. But he also is very talented. He's a puppet maker, I think. And he mm-hmm. writes music. So he does tinkle on his piano every now and then. And I think that is part of his real life. He's just a very talented guy. And like like the guy in the... the, the uh, uh... Banshee's in a show and actually is a fiddler. Actually is a fiddler. There you go. Yeah. Brendan Frey. No, Brendan. I forgot. Gleason. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. He's really good. And I thought he got an Oscar too, right? Did he? Did he? Or the other guy got the Oscar? Did they? One of them got an Oscar. Wow. I totally missed it then. I don't remember. Oh my God. That's crazy. I thought he did. That is crazy. Yeah. It wasn't called Farrell. Although it could have been. Hey, if I'm wrong, yeah. we're going to correct it oh, on reason? the episode. Yeah, no, no. We'll just, <laughs> no we're we'll not going to edit it out. Yeah, we will I'll, be wrong. We'll just Google it while we're sitting okay. here talking. So what else is going on? I've covered my uh, Comic-Con. Oh, and a new season of Ted Lasso. Very good. I love Ted Lasso. I don't think you watch uh, it. Uh, no, a lot of people have um, have abandoned it. Right. I We have friends on online that they, they hated the second season. Well, I didn't hate the second season. I don't think I... I was enjoying it as much as the first season because it was just so unique and fresh. But I like the second season. But I'm hoping, you know, sometimes a show goes through a bad season. Yeah. You know, they have a dead season. Um, Oscar wins, right? Yeah. Wins 2023? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll see what I, I can I find. I hope you are right. You know how much I hate being wrong. I know. I, I hate being um, wrong more than anything. More winners. Let's see. I'll just read them all. Brandon Fraser, Canadian. I was so glad he won. Everything Everywhere, Best Picture. Michelle Yeoh, Best Actress. Um, Natu Niantu for Best Original Song. Okay, this is going to make me laugh. I had no idea there was a movie called All Quiet on the Western Front, and it was in every category. I know. I was like, what the fuck? Where did this movie come from? I have no idea. Never even heard of it. It's got to be like a World War One movie. It's right? a World War One movie, probably. And I think I was like, I think that's a book that I heard of before. It might have been in my classic comics. But I was like, where the hell did this movie come from? It was nominated for everything. And at the beginning of the, the first hour, it was winning everything it was nominated yeah. for. Yeah. I was like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So Jamie Lee Curtis, Guillermo del Toro. Um, I'm looking for Daniel Kwan, Everything Everywhere for Best art direction no both oh yeah though daniel's got best director um why can't i find 
Best Supporting Best Actor. Supporting Actor, Brendan Gleeson. It was him. Good for oh, you. Oh, nominee. Nominee. Yeah, I can't remember who won. So you just was... know it was the guy from everywhere. Every... Oh, so he yeah, was, was, he was nominated, but he didn't tell uh, you. He, he didn't win. He didn't win. Okay. Yes, it was the guy from Never mind. That's all right. God, I was wrong. No, no, no. Don't I was write this down, people. Do not write down hey, the name. Hey, who Kwan is who won Best Supporting Actor. Yes. So they really stole it for the... You could tell I didn't watch the Oscars. I know. And you could tell that I did, but I can't can't apparently <laughs> articulate. You just weren't paying attention. It's not, I didn't remember them giving a thank you speech because I mentioned him. Ah. for. Uh, but I forgot that it was... Maybe I good. just assumed he would win the Oscars. Yeah. It was so good. He was really good. He was good. Well... We could pretend. That... We could pretend. Um, so we have a guest. A guest. A recurring. Yes. She's, she's pretty much a special agent. She's been yes. on here the most. It's like we have to give her a jacket or something. That's or right. Special agent Sarah Elliott is uh, is going to join us uh, in a minute. Um, uh, you will remember she's she's been on the podcast uh, Four uh, times, a few times, times before. Um, she uh, is responsible for the Swallowing the Camel blog. Facts plus logic equals truth. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, uh, and Sarah is super fantastic. Yeah. And we're really happy that she's going to join us. And she's going to be a, a reoccurring guest on yes, the show. Yes, with lots of great topics. And we're going to talk about the Whitechapel murders. That's right. All right. Get a blanket, a cup of cocoa. Yeah, get your drink. And you can stop it for a second, get a drink, get yourself comfortable, get a snack, and then settle in. Special Agent Sarah is joining us now. We're welcoming back Special Agent Sarah from beautiful Edmonton. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to the agency. Good morning. How Good are you morning. guys? Pretty good. Cold. How is it there? Uh, also cold. Yeah. <laughs> but it's always cold there. Uh, mostly it is. We have two months of dying of heat and then the rest were frozen. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, the only time I... I visited Edmonton was when when my my work would send me and they would only send me in the dead of winter when it was either a crazy snowstorm or 40 below zero so in my mind that's what Edmonton is midwinter Edmonton it is <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad you're here cold or no cold because one thing is I think there's always you know we're excited that maybe you're going to be a regular contributor once a month maybe or so we'll see and um, you know what, what we started bouncing around topics. There were so many good topics because you're always covering things that are esoteric or mysterious or covert. And um, then we came up with uh, talking about Jack the Ripper era. Because yeah. it's wrong to say Jack the Ripper, really, isn't it? Uh, I, I prefer Whitechapel Killer myself. Me too. Me too. Or Whitechapel. Yeah, killings. Killings, well, maybe. I can tell you, I prepared for this episode <laughs> um, by watching a Sherlock Holmes movie, A Study in Terror, with John Neville. It was a really irritating movie, but strangely <laughs> compelling in parts. But the, the Sherlock Holmes parts were really irritating, because like all Sherlock Holmes uh, stories, it doesn't make any sense how he uncovers the criminal. <laughs> But you're That's not a, a Sherlock like Holmes fan. It's a bit you like Colombo. He just goes straight to the right person. He doesn't really have to do any investigation. Yeah. yeah true. True. Well, we don't really see Colombo. Did you say Colombo goes straight to the right person? Usually he does. Yeah. He usually does. It's like he does know who it is and he humors them the whole time. I mean, oh my God, if I saw Colombo and I did a murder, I would just confess and get it over with <laughs> because he'll just drive you crazy. Yeah, I suppose Colombo is a little bit like a Sherlock Holmes. 
Yeah, but I, I, I love them both. I would prefer. Sorry? Except he doesn't have the reputation of Sherlock Holmes. No, that's true. He has a reputation that precedes him. He's like a minor celebrity. But nobody knows Columbo even after he solves all these crimes. That's true. True. But who would win in a cage match? Sherlock Holmes versus Columbo. That's the question. Definitely Sherlock. Because doesn't he do that crazy stick fighting? (laughs) Yeah, he does. He does do the stick fighting. And plus, he has like... Dr. Watson as his manager, sort of like the wrestler, the Sheik had Abdul Farouk as his manager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but oh, I do love it. So that's something Sarah and I have in common is we're both working our way through Columbo. I'm probably about four episodes ahead of you, although I haven't watched in 10 days. So we may have caught up. Um, yeah, I take little breaks too. I'm alternating between that and MASH. I'm very much oh. in the 70s right now. So. Oh, excellent. I love MASH. Oh my God. I love them both. Heavenly, heavenly. I, I always enjoyed particularly the Columbos that had guest stars from other places, like like when Johnny Cash was on there mm-hmm. as a bad guy. Because mm-hmm. uh, oh, they never, they're always bad actors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and that makes for an extra good Columbo. And I, also I, I like I, the I, ones where his dog is, and his dog and his car are in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. car is, the car is a co-star itself. It I, I also love the ones where they bring back a villain from a previous episode and just dress them up differently. Yes. Like Robert Falk was a villain three times, I think. Yes, yeah. yes. Love and that. I saw somebody, I, oh, the guy who was in The Prisoner. He's, oh, yes, Patrick he's, good. He's, he's, yeah, he's a recurring guest. He's been at least two two episodes at least. I think and Jack he, Cassidy was maybe in, in he a, was, a couple he of was, them as, was, as bad guys. Yeah, he was right. a magician in one. Yes, of them. he was. That's right. An evil magician. Yeah. <laughs> a nice touch. It's a nice touch. Well, so we're going to talk about the Whitechapel murders, Whitechapel killings. Um, Sarah turned me on to a, a podcast I've listened to this week and um Tell me some of your ideas. Where can we start with this? What was it? Was 1988, right? Not 1988. 1888. I'm going to slap you and she laughing at me here because <laughs> we're in the same room. It's going to be hard. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always interesting because, of course, there are people who've made sort of a cottage industry out of Jack the Ripper or the Whitechapel mm-hmm. murders, and they're always trying to solve it, they're always coming up with new names. So there's always a fresh crop of theories at any given time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're kind of valid. And sometimes they are so hilariously bizarre that you wonder why anyone even bothered. But it doesn't matter what the theory is. There's somebody out there who just clings to it. And they just, they've, they've made it their life's destiny to prove to you that Vincent van Gogh killed. <laughs> chapel. You know, there's, there's people who will just, go way over the top to to prove to you that the theory is the right one. So the the most recent crop of theories really fascinated me um, because one isn't even really a theory. It's just this idea put forward by the scholar uh, Holly Rubenhold, who who did the podcast Bad Women as well, that some of the women were not actually sex workers. Not all of the victims were out there, you know, doing sex work some of them were just sleeping outdoors mm-hmm. some of wow. them were just walking around you They're know they yeah yeah which is an interesting idea um there are some issues with it and i, I do take exception to a, a couple of the things that she's put out there but overall it's it's, it's just an interesting avenue to go down because it it kind of makes you rethink the victimology of these crimes like mm-hmm. are we really looking at the most vulnerable 
people or are you looking at people who were just victims of circumstance like they just happened to be so you know, was the killer was the killer opportunistic or selective yeah yeah and was he able to talk them into being alone with him was he able to get them into it's always been assumed that if they were sex workers it would be very he could just pretend he was soliciting them and just get them into an alley and kill them but maybe that wasn't that simple maybe he had to finesse them a little bit or maybe he just came upon them when they were sleeping and attacked them so it, it puts a whole different character on on this white chapel killer like what what was he really up to true you know i think a couple of things i listened to 10 episodes the first season i believe and there's a second season i haven't made it there yet and at first i was like well maybe this is underwhelming but it kind of grew on me so the 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 academic the uh, researcher she does go into the background of each woman and normally we would say the thing that these women had in common were that they were in the sex trade right like you said well one thing she did point out and she hasn't verbalized it yet she said that they're all outdoors but actually they were all alcoholics by the sound of it they were all alcoholics and therefore they had been disenfranchised from their families many of them had children and were married and had to yeah and had to leave their families because their family couldn't stand it anymore they were just disruptive and not caregiving and almost all of them had some kind of trade either housekeeping, house cleaning, sewing, cooking. They had a lot of skills when they were young women. They grew up with skills. Um, Mm -hmm. But this alcoholism, I thought, was very telling. So sometimes they did sleep in the street because they couldn't afford a rooming house. And so they would be sleeping in alleys or sleeping here and there or dead drunk wandering the streets begging for money sometimes. Yeah, and that's that's something that we uh, forget about these victims is that they did try to patched together incomes in any way they could. Um, I know at least one of the victims, Catherine Eddowes, the one who was killed in Mitre Square, um, would do something that a lot of women in East End would do uh, every year, which is go out and do hops picking out in the fields. That was a stable source of income for people. Right. Is that like for home brewing? What do you do with hops besides brewing? Well, they they wouldn't keep them, but they would, it was for the the farmers, whoever was growing the hops, they would go and pick Oh, okay. for the it was agricultural labor, basically, that they could rely on year after year. But 1888, I guess, was not a very good growing season. So they would get out to the country and be told, no, nope, no work for you this year. So they'd go back into the city. Catherine Eddowes, I don't know, maybe if she had been able to be hops picking at the time mm-hmm. that she was actually in Mitre Square, maybe things would have turned out differently, right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Kate um, Eddowes. And um, Eugene, you'll find this interesting. She used to write ballads and songs and sell like sheet music and it was very trendy to go in a pub and buy these sheet music and sing to it mm, cool. so she had a little bit of a songwriting um yeah. career uh, they were very creative with their very, yeah very uh, i think it was liz stride who worked for so many jewish people cleaning houses and everything that she learned some yiddish mm. some yeah. yiddish how, how many victims do we think there are or were that's very controversial. Uh, there really are just the canonical five. And I know like Hallie Rubenhold um, identifies just the five and she wrote a book called The Five where she just details their lives. But my own personal feeling is there were about 11 murders in a, a two year span. Damn. I tend to think, we think of it as being just the autumn of terror, like the movie. <laughs> mm. But I think um, 
to me, I, I think going back to February 1888 would be a good idea because there was a lady named Annie Millwood who was attacked. She wasn't mutilated to the same extent as some of the later victims, but her legs were slashed, her abdomen was slashed in a way that indicates this was a very early attack by the same sort of killer. Mm. I think she may have been the first victim. So we're going all the way back to the beginning of the year, actually. Mm -hmm. Is that because the, the mutilation became more specific later? It did, but it didn't. I mean, when you look at the, the extent of the mutilation, I don't want to get too graphic or right, gross right. because it is pretty disgusting. And we all know the details, right? We all know horrible things happen to these women. Um, I think that it didn't necessarily, it kind of escalated, but there were certain crimes where it didn't, where the escalation seemed to kind of plateau or stop. Like Liz Stride, um, of course, there's a theory that that the killer was actually interrupted during the murder of Liz Stride. And that's why that he, he wasn't able to finish the mutilation. Right. But equally so, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, um, maybe Liz Stride was not a victim of the Whitechapel killer. And that was just a coincidental killing. Mm. This of course was the, the so-called double event where two women were killed on the same night. So Liz Stride was killed around, sometime around 1 a.m. or shortly before 1 a.m. <clears throat> Would you say that's very, unusual for serial killers to to do multiple murders in the same, no, same night? No, Ted Bundy actually killed two women on the same day as well. Okay, and I think uh, I think Jeffrey Dahmer did too. It's almost like an escalation or op the opportunity oh, arose and the opportunity showed up again. Why why miss it? With, without enough information, mm -hmm. I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought that. Um, whatever gratification the killer would get um would build up the need to get that gratification again and then do another killing um, yeah i think that is the one of the ways we look at serial killers is they troll they build up they get released then they go back trolling again and they try to kill to 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 dull that urge with alcohol or drugs uh, they do try to self-medicate themselves out of the oh, definitely and you know Looking at this killer, you would have to think that he would be, he would fit that mold perfectly. Uh, there are a couple of things that I feel very strongly about. One is that he knew the area so well. Mm. He knew all the escape routes. He knew exactly where to take these women. He was super, almost creepily familiar with some of these locations. I think he was absolutely local. And because uh, Annie Millwood was first attacked in Spitalfields, I actually believe that instead of starting in Whitechapel, he may have started in Spitalfields and that may be where he lived. Where he lived, yeah. Um, the, the murder of Annie Chapman in particular points to someone who knows the area super well, because when you hear about these crimes, you always think of them as being in sort of easily accessible areas. But the murder of Annie Chapman in Spitalfields on, uh, I believe it's called Hanbury Street, um, Annie Chapman was killed in the yard behind 29 Hanbury Street. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I this is not, habits. you would think a yard, well, anyone can get into a yard, right? There's gotta be a hole in the fence. There's gotta be some way to get in there. But the only way to get into the yard at 29 Hanbury was to go through the lower floor hallway of a house absolutely teeming with renters. Like we're talking about entire families, their adult children, a widower, all of these people are just about to get up for work. This is like very early in the morning, around 5 a.m. And this person, whoever he is, has the nerve 
to with with Annie Chapman walk through a hallway in this house to get into that backyard. Mm -hmm. Possibly knowing that that's where she would hide and sleep. So that suggests that that the victims were hunted as opposed to being handy. That's possible too. I I believe myself because so many of them were did have either drinking problems or were full blown alcoholics and did spend a lot of time at the pubs. Mm. That this could be a guy who spent a lot of time at the pubs yeah. and followed them. Followed them. Mm. Yeah, makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. That would yeah. uh, that would explain a lot. <laughs> yes, I thought something else that on this podcast that she made was very interesting. First of all, she kept repeating this as one of the most famous cold cases. It's never been solved and that in when Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated people anywhere else in the world didn't find out for 10 days because it had to go on a ship they had to travel and then give the news whereas the telegraph had been invented by 1888 and this is one of those murders that went international tabloid style and there was money money to be made off of it Yes, mm-hmm. went to New York City that yeah. night, like everyone Makes sense knew. That, that it became that infamous. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not know if there are other serial killers that didn't get the same attention. Right, but in a smaller way that wasn't recorded in the same, it, yeah, in the, traveling through the papers so quickly. And papers were waiting for any story on it. Um, I, I guess b- before mass communication, the life of a serial killer could be easier. <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, with less developed police forces with less mass communication uh it 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 would probably be easier Mm -hmm. for him to do his dirty Mm -hmm. deeds and it it does seem to be in like what we're looking at in in the united states uh, is the decline in serial killer where we've talked about that before i think that that it's declined and trying to figure out why and then what would have been the impetus at that time in London that would have been a parallel. I don't know what it would have been. Uh, crime rate, ghetto, poverty, I don't know. Um, you know, I've mentioned on here before, I'm sure you watched Dahmer on Netflix. Oh, some of it. A little bit. Okay, well, the good, there was a great conversation between the uh, pastor and Dahmer once he was in prison about why am I the way I am? What happened? They said one of the theories is fathers coming back from the Second World War in Vietnam, that something happened in that generations, in those two generations of kids would that be one or two and then the reason it stopped one of the reasons it stopped this is an ongoing theory is that porn is available so serial killers are getting oh, that interesting yeah that the pornography mm-hmm. has given a release to those um fantasies that you can go and play them out in that is um, so in way. Yeah. of course people take the opposite view too that there was too much porn available and it triggered you know that's more like the conservative. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not sure I'd buy that. Point yeah, of view. I don't think so. And Ted Bundy, he tried to say that too. Remember, I'm just like, yeah. don't interview him. Don't ask him his theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah that caused a little mini moral panic in the states. I remember even my grandmother uh, going to the local video stores and trying to get them to remove all their R-rated and X-rated movies because Ooh. it might trigger the next Ted Bundy, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, wow. I don't. Think that. Well, you know, we grew up here in, in Ontario with Mary Brown, who was the head of the Ontario Film Review Board. She was our chief censor, and, and her and the Film Review Board in Ontario would decide whether uh, something was obscene or not. Like, they were the only people allowed to make that decision, um, would decide whether it's who can watch it, whether it's X-rated or R-rated or G-rated, put mm-hmm. all the ratings mm-hmm. on. Um, and... 
um, she was an incredibly powerful figure in Ontario for quite a long time. It's pretty scary. It is scary. It is scary. I think yeah, that I think somehow they a lot of the people that are on these panels almost have to have, be secret about it because you know you can have a lot of financial pressure put on you to be bribed or to be followed or to to not I, I feel like I've seen a documentary that was about LA and the censorship board. And I, I don't remember the name of it, but I remember there being an issue of people, maybe it should be secret who does that. Or private, not secret, private, protected. I don't know. Maybe don't censor anything. Anonymous censorship. Anonymous censorship, yeah. Well, that's like extra fascist. Yes, yes it is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Well, to get back to the theories, like uh, yeah. the human hold information is really interesting, but there are a couple other theories uh, that have surfaced kind of recently within maybe the last five years or so hmm. about the Whitechapel killer that are very interesting and kind of disturbing. Um, one is that. Uh, there was a, a socialist gang that was responsible for the killings. Damn socialists. That sounds fishy. <laughs> so this one actually. Gangs of roving socialists. <laughs> I, thought they, I thought they liked sex workers, all those leftists. Oh, you know, they did. And that's the sad thing about this theory. Okay. So this one seems to be put out there by a, a PI in the States. Uh, he's not one of the English ripperologists. So I don't know how he came into it at all. But his name is uh, Randy Williams. He's done quite a few podcasts and he's, I think he's written a book as well. He's put a lot of information out there. But his theory is that the International Working Men's Association, where Liz Stride was murdered, she was found directly outside of it, um, was sort of a hotbed for not just socialist activism, which is what it is, but that it was also um, headquarters for this this incredibly violent group of men who were trying to um, turn England upside down. They just wanted to create so chaos and, and bring the throne to its knees and that sort of thing, which obviously the Ripper murders did not do, but. Well, I okay. want to throw chaos into the monarchy too, but yeah. <laughs> so the crazy, the crazy thing about this theory is that the man who found the body of Elizabeth Stride outside the Working Men's Club, which was also known as the Burner Street Club, um, his name was Louis Dim Dimschitz, sometimes called Dimschatz or Dimschitz. It's, okay. I, I see a lot of different spellings. But most of the, the men who belonged to the Burner Street Club were, of course, Jewish. A lot of them were from Poland, Russia. You know, they, they were more recent immigrants. And they were really at the head of, of socialist activity within the East End, right? So Louis Dimschitz, Dimschitz is coming home from work. He's had a long day. He sells jewelry at some market and he's coming home. And it's, you know, probably been a very long day. He's actually the steward at the Working Men's Club. And he stumbles across this body. And he's not sure if the woman is passed out or if she's dead. So he goes into the club and alerts people, hey, there's a, a body out here. And that's how Liz Stride was discovered. So what this Randy Williams is trying to say is that uh, Lewis himself was the killer. Mm. That he was one of the gang of like three or four men who belonged to this working men's club. And that he, for whatever reason, wanted to draw attention to his own crime. And then he stayed there and dealt with the police while three of his compatriots ran to Mitre Square. Like literally they must have run to Mitre Square mm. to kill Kate Eddowes mm. on the same evening. 
That's so a pretty interesting idea. It is incredibly bizarre. It, it's a it's making me think of Juarez, where there's the warehouses on the border of U.S. and Mexico, and all the killings are happening. An interesting uh, suggestion that somehow it's this working class uh, purge or you know revolt. It seems unlikely to me that that's what people would do if you're going to protest or put scares and you know terrorize. I I think that. The people that were doing that kind of protesting were more thinking about blowing up government buildings and yes. such. If you go by yes. the secret agent, right, by Joseph Conrad. Yeah. And you know what? They were very supportive of the sex workers. Yeah. Um, the guy who started the club, Peter Kapotkin, had actually said, he said later on that, you know, if my guys, if my people had known who Jack the Ripper was at the time, we would have taken him out. But... Mm -hmm we would have been more likely to take out the landlords who were putting these women out on the street in the first right. place. <laughs> I love it. There you go. There's a sound bite I like to hear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, pretty crazy theory. Another theory uh, that's only been put out there by one person that I know of, a guy named uh, Simon Daryl Wood, is that Jack the Ripper simply did not exist. Hmm. Hmm. Not just, 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 just murder, just straight up murder. Uh, he kind of hints around that maybe this was just a distraction that someone staged to kind of draw heat away from uh, other investigations, like the, um, the uh, investigation into Irish activity. Mm -hmm. Does he mean that the murders didn't exist? Or that the murders were just uh, were the work of a serial killer, or yeah, he's saying he's kind of he never gets down to it. He never really presents a cogent theory, but he does kind of hint that it was sort of a group activity that was meant to draw attention away from other more important, more important quotation air quotes things that were going on at the time, like uh, you know investigating Irish terrorism and Irish activism. Um, and the Cleveland Street scandal, which was um, a great big bust of a, of a gay brothel that had happened. Oh, um, you know, I could see something like that. Let's say they, they happen to have died. Um, a couple of them, you know, hard living. One woman did have tuberculosis, if I remember correctly. And they were very ill. And it was, it was, um, the podcast said that it was going into her brain. It was starting to affect her brain. Maybe I could see if someone had died and then they thought, I'll make it look like craziness. And um, oh. that'll stir up something, but she was already dead. Because how good is the forensics? How good was it to say she died from this? You, you know, if you, if you freshly died and you cut a neck, it probably would bleed a little bit. I don't know if maybe as much. But um, so that I can sort of imagine that, sort of imagine that maybe there wasn't a mass killer. It, it, you know, and there are so many ways this could go to. I myself believe there could have been a duo involved. There mm -hmm. could have been two killers like the Hillside Stranglers. Mm -hmm. um, and there is some evidence for that. Uh, there was a really fascinating, again, we have to go back to Liz Stride and, and the Burner Street Club. Uh, there was a really fascinating sighting that was made by a Jewish man who was walking down Burner Street about, I would say half and less than half an hour after Liz, before Liz Stride was murdered. And he sees a man speaking with Liz Stride right outside the gate where she was to the entryway where she was found just a short time later. 
He sees them talking and he sees the man, a broad shouldered man in his thirties, push her to the ground. This is 30 minutes before she's found dead in the same spot. And then the man turns to someone else who's standing across the street, a man with a pipe, and says, he shouts out the word Lipsky or the name Lipsky. Now, that doesn't really mean anything now, but I guess there had been a man named uh, Lipsky who had murdered either a girlfriend or a wife a couple of years before. And the name Lipsky had become sort of uh, an insult that you would throw at Jewish people. Mm. It was like an anti-Semitic slur mm-hmm. at that time to call someone Lipsky. Mm. Wow. So Israel Schwartz, the, this witness, thinks that maybe he was being yelled at. Maybe they were calling him Lipsky mm-hmm. and that this broad-shouldered man standing on one side of the street was alerting his, his lookout on the other side of the street. Hey, there's a Lipsky coming your way. Mm. So the man on the other side of the street kind of gives chase and shoes him out of the area. So Israel Schwartz, more than any other witness, and numerous people might have might have seen or come close to seeing the Whitechapel killer, I think he may actually have seen him. He could have been that broad-shouldered man that was seen with his stride. Mm. Mm. So the possibility of men working together, and you know, maybe there's a maybe there's a spotter, maybe there's two guys involved. Who knows? Yeah, and that's a very good thing. It is. I don't. I don't know. Is it that far from? reality or we just programmed to believe there could be a violent killer to me I guess you know growing up knowing about it I assume oh there could be somebody who would have that kind of fetish and kill people like that and we've certainly seen it through the 70s here um, well, definitely. Yes. well, well so plus we automatically assume it was one person who did yeah. a bunch of killings because he comes with a name mm-hmm. he comes with mm-hmm. Jack the Ripper right right yes. which sort of yeah. precludes other some other mm-hmm. possibilities you know when the world trade center crashed and was taken down someone did kill their wife and put her body part on the site as a cover but the thing is the women that are victim i know it was quite good they eventually did find out that wow. she was a murderer um but the problem is oh, there was no reason there was no value in these women dying no. other than the shame on their family maybe the shame that their family And this is why the people who say that there was some sort of political or religious motivation, I think, are a little out to lunch because the murders themselves, I mean, you can just kill women if you're trying to make a point. You don't have to horrifically mutilate them. No, no, exactly. That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And this was something the killer had to do. This was his Mm -hmm. need and the purpose for the killings was to, he was obviously someone obsessed with, with the anatomy and obsessed with the, the human body in a way that was not even remotely healthy and we've seen that so many times since then mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. like many killers are like this there's something yeah. that they need to do that is totally irrational mm-hmm. and that's what most of to these the rest killings, of us. to the rest of us yeah to the rest of us yeah, yeah. To them it makes sense you know to a to a dahmer it all makes perfect sense to the rest of us it's very baffling mm. i think I, the um Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I keep thinking about that, that, that this was a world, this was an international story. And I think that's why it's not just that they weren't caught in a cold case, is that our great grandparents all heard this story. And so we grew up with it within the family, like this could happen. And it, it happened around the world that people could have been reacting to this story. Um, and that's so early on in it, you know, I think that's why it's lasted so long. 
not just the fact that it can't be solved. You know, I wanted to say, um, I thought one of the best theories, um, I don't think it's true, but the most interesting, you said Van Gogh was the was the serial killer in, in Whitechapel. Well, it was Walter Sickert, who happened to be a painter I really, really liked yeah, um, I, in, I was in school and studying in that. And then later, five years later, Patricia Cornwell, who I'd read her book, she wrote, she started the forensic trend in a lot of ways. She was like, it's Walter Sickert. I was like, well, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was a good theory. She had a good theory. Well, there are so many theories of artists and writers and poets being the Whitechapel killer. And I think it kind of taps into an idea that madness and creativity are so connected. You know, we Who's have this. artist. It's always the artist, right? And life drawing. Causing trouble. Also anatomy drawing that you go to an, you go to a cadaver and view the body so you learn how to draw. That, that is something, mm -hmm. that is a form of classical study. But with Sigurd, I think he kind of, I, I don't think he was the killer, mm. but he definitely liked to play with that idea, you know, by employing certain things in his work, like yeah. giving them ambiguous titles that could hint, hey, maybe there's a murder in this <laughs> picture. <laughs> I think he called one of his paintings Jack the Ripper's Bedroom or something like that. Like, mm. he definitely wanted to play marketing. with that idea. Mm. Marketing, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Early viral marketing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think most of the, the artist theories are really just tapping into our, our fear of creativity, our fear of creative people. Mm -hmm. that and our fear of uh, social justice. Well, and in, well, our, in, in our century, mm -hmm. um, artists, uh, particularly of the modern variety, mm -hmm. are charlatans. Mm -hmm. You That's know, I, I was grow I grew up hearing about how artists were charlatans, those modern artists. <laughs> You know, and when when in Ottawa, the National Gallery bought Voice of the Voice of Fire mm -hmm. by Barney Newman, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and how many times did, did you read? My child could do this. This is an outrage. <laughs> and I I recall thinking it's an outrage. They spent six million dollars on one painting. What a great collection of paintings you could get for six million dollars. Yeah. Just like you don't have to buy the six million dollar one. Put a put a cap at like. 200,000 or right, something. Right. Heck, they could buy any of my paintings, 20, 30,000, 5,000, no problem. <laughs> yeah. More, more of a spending issue than an art issue. Well, yeah. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with the art. It's just what you're spending for it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It's imbalanced. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the other artists who were accused. Um, hmm. There were quite a few. There was a poet in there somewhere. Really? Not well, anyone. They're worse than artists. Francis Thompson. I'm not familiar with Francis Thompson. Well, I don't know him, so he probably was suffering and angry. Not Damn it! I need attention. Uh, Lewis Carroll oh, was, was named at one time. Who was? Lewis Carroll was named. Really? That's yeah. disturbing. Uh, I, I believe it was a computer programmer who put out a little book. It's out of print now, of course, mm -hmm. called uh, Jack the Ripper, Lighthearted Fiend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the entire book consists of this guy going through uh, like Alice through the looking glass and Alice in Wonderland, taking uh, snatches of poetry or prose and just rearranging the letters into yeah. anagrams. 
Yeah. So he's turning he's turning just innocent like children's poetry into um, <laughs> you know I'm I, right. I'm going right. to I I shall kill all the women and things like that. Was, well, you know that, that that is interesting because part of why we can't figure out who it was was because it didn't continue. Yeah. It was a, it was a year. Was it possibly your your idea that it could have been a couple of years beforehand? But it really was only 1888. So what happened? Did they die? Did they have tuberculosis? Did they move? Did they move? And that's mm -hmm. where the argument of H.H. Um, H. Holmes is the serial killer from Chicago and and their great, great nephew or grandson, who is a lawyer in Chicago, has the theory that that was Jack the Ripper, that they went to yeah. him for a few for a few yeah. months and played out or their did fantasies they, did there. The deeds there and then yeah, and, and they returned home. back to continue their serial killer career in Chicago. It's like that's right. like rich, rich guys going to Ted Nugent's farm to shoot some wild horses. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I thought that was a great theory as well. Yeah, there's there are so many of them. Like uh, James Maybrick was a really big one for a while due to the hoax diary that he mm, supposedly wrote. Yes, I remember that one. That's it's, I I tend to think of some of these as kind of low hanging fruit because it's <laughs> yeah. so hard to research people who lived at that time. Most people who lived in the East End of London died in absolute obscurity. Yes, and you can't research them. So right. it's so much easier if you have a famous victim who was all or perpetrator who was already in the headlines that is so, now, true. It's so much easier to investigate right? and in that way the only reason we knew about the victims and can, and can gather some information is because they must have interviewed their families because they died they right. probably if they died just but, in a poorhouse or in a hospital we wouldn't even but when we don't know the details about the people that makes it easier to be um uh, to be the target of of fictionalized accounts, yeah. Because you can make up anything, uh, because there's enough obscurity around the details. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's true. Yeah. And who's going to stop you? I mean, the ancestors of of or the descendants of these these women are really not going to step forward and say, "Hey, hey, hey, you can't mm -hmm. talk about my great 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 grandmother like that." Right, right. You know, no one's here to defend the victims or to mm -hmm. advocate for better. Uh, investigative work mm. the ripperologists kind of have i don't know if you listen to the the bad women podcast i mean it it seems like sort of a seething cauldron of like misogyny and <laughs> and inviting and i think it is to a degree i mean there certainly are people who come in and just want to scrap and are kind of uh obnoxious but you know it it's really not true it's not that they don't use the methods of, of historical research it's just that there is so much leeway. You can get away with so much in this field, this made-up field of ripperology. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's really and, wide open. And they're making a living. They're taking people through the buildings and showing where the murders mm -hmm. happened and sharing their theory. Well, and, sure, they have, and they have a couple of books to sell. Serial killer tourism. Absolutely. Dark There's every other kind of tourism. Yeah. Dark tourism. Yeah, yeah, dark tourism, yeah. I mean, uh, if I went there, I would definitely want to go to Whitechapel. Definitely. I mean, I yeah, went to where JFK was built. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i can't lie i probably i don't know if i would take a tour but i would kind of want to check out the areas and just yeah. see what's changed what's the same you know can you get a sense of what it was like back then yeah i'd be curious i, I would do a tour with the woman who did the podcast I yeah thought, i thought her angle was a very important one i mean i definitely feel differently about the situation now that i've heard that they had jobs they had livelihood they were real people 
who came on, they went, some of them went through terrible trauma. Oh, those sex workers are real people too. Yes. Yeah. But I meant that I meant full, because they there's still some issues that they were sex workers. It's not completely removed. They may have done some sex work. Ah. It's it's entirely possible. She's she's not saying or that maybe they some were, of them were sex workers in some way. Correct. Yeah. She's not writing that off, but she went back into the fact that it is sex workers are people too, because whether they were or not, they had childhoods, they had a father that killed themselves, they had mothers that were overworked and had 12 babies. I mean, she's she's got she's filled out a lot of information. 12 babies, that is yeah. And I I and and through it all, I did look on, I'd go look on Wikipedia and see what had been added or to the victims' names and what I could find. And it seems like she was doing some great research. Yeah. On, you know, on them, nothing on them. Even if the yeah, even if there are some flaws with her with her research as, as regarding the policing and things like that, um, I, I think she did a service just by directing us back to the women, back to mm -hmm. exactly the people who were actually living there, and not just them, but she and especially in her book The Five, she gives a much broader view of what was going on in Whitechapel at that time. Yeah. She talks about something that could have happened. It is happening today. She talked about a homeless camp that went up in Trafalgar Square in the summer of 1887, the year before the murders began. And this was not, you know, just this was a community. This was a group of people who put together an encampment. Um, it was a bad year for crops. A lot of people were out of work and they just got together and and looked out for each other. It was yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, I loved all that too, where she's talking about the neighborhood that it was a, you know, uh, and very busy, busy neighborhood. Oh, you know what's wild about what? these crimes? What what I can't get over is how no matter what time of day the crime occurred, there were always people out and about. Yes, yes. Like when Liz Stride yes. was found, um, there was still a meeting going on in the Burner Street Working Men's Club. They were burning the midnight oils. These were yeah. people who had to get up at four in the morning to go right. to work, but they wow. were so dedicated to the socialist cause. They were going to stay at that meeting and they were going to talk, have, you know, brew up some coffee and talk about it afterwards. Like they were so committed and, and people were coming and going, doing their thing. Yeah, it sounded like the pub was still open too. There were people in oh, the pub that came out and everybody, they had a huge crowd go around her body and they were, had to find some canvas to cover her. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it was just a happening place, you know, people, I, I don't think it ever slept. I think everybody was, was moving around at all hours. It was pretty cool. And there's a, sort of a kind of a safety zone talking about um, the Whitechapel killings because it's so long ago. And yet it sounds like when you really look at it, you think about it, it sounds like something we could see. I know the Hughes brothers, when they made the movie From Hell with Johnny Depp, they said that everybody was like, why are you making a film about england like this and he said well it was a ghetto and there were sex workers and there's violence that's what we work with that's that was their genre so absolutely it still rings true today it totally does everything that happened then you see today and we forget you know we we think of the poverty and the grind and and all the horrible things that were happening the sweatshops and the dos houses and everything in the east end but we don't look at the fact that these people came together as a community they hung out in the communal kitchens in the DOS houses, had drinks together. They all knew each other. They all would say hi to each other at the pub. You know, these people really bonded and they did look out for each other and they were upset by these crimes. Yeah, I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's been highlighted enough. And um, very interesting. I'm so glad you came with this angle. When we mm -hmm. talked about, when, you know, as soon as you said 
the time of Jack the Ripper. I was like, that's what we have to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot we can learn from it. There really is. Looking back on that time, how did these people survive? How did they get through their days? What could have been done for them? And what can we do now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Because we're still we're facing all the same things they were then. We still have predators. Mm -hmm. You know, we still have poverty. We still have people. We have a housing crisis. We have people who cannot find a place to live. They're working. They're hustling. But they can't find a place to live. Mm -hmm. And they can't afford to if they do find a place. Exactly. Although there is a place because the Alberta government <laughs> is now advertising in Ontario for people to go to Alberta where all the good jobs are. <laughs> and apparently 10,000 people from Ontario have migrated in the past really? year to, to Alberta, to the land of opportunity. Wow. Wow. It's like in the 70s <laughs> with the oil jobs. Yeah. Well, it's always good talking Maybe. to you. Always good talking to you. Um, any other sound bites or thoughts uh, you know what i think we've covered all the the major points here uh, i really I oh oh one yeah. What, yeah. no i did i did have to say one more thing about mm. the theory that jack the ripper didn't exist okay and might have been just kind of a diversionary tactic mm. or something like that um so the guy who wrote the book deconstructing jack his name <laughs> is simon wood um that's a great title great title right <laughs> So yeah, interesting theory, but he kind of went a little too far in a podcast. I, I listened to him being interviewed and he said that the final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, mm -hmm. uh, very little is known about her, of course. She's kind of the most mysterious of the victims, especially of the canonical five victims. He, he said that perhaps that wasn't a real body in the bed. Perhaps that was a wax figure from a wax museum in Whitechapel that had been brought in and then just arranged in a certain way and photographed by the police. So I think he overreached a little with that. He went beyond what he had said in his book and, and it got pretty ridiculous at that point. So, and this is what happens with a lot of these theories. You know, they might start out from a fairly solid lead or idea, and then they just kind of <laughs> jump a few sharks and it just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Easy to do. Yeah, there's that decay that just happens. Yeah, sure. And desperation to keep the uh, to keep your view going. Well, especially if your if your view is also your business. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I mean, if this is if you're a professional ripperologist, and there are a few, there are a few who make their primary income from mm -hmm. ripperology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to try to hang on to it, right? Yep. So. Wish I had grown up to be a ripperologist. <laughs> <laughs> but I talk about the women. That's well, it. It's an interesting it is. Uh, career choice. It is. Well, Sarah, I can't wait to find out what we talk about next time you're on here. Me too. I have no idea. It could be anything. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let us know and we'll um we'll research it. We both we both did a lot of work this week to kind of catch up to you and really appreciate it. Thank Sounds you. Sounds good. I'm so sorry you had to suffer through bad Sherlock Holmes, though, Eugene. That's <laughs> you know, the, the movie, what I liked about it was it had a, a ton of intent about it. It wasn't like, oh, they're going to film the story and however it comes out, it comes out. No, they had ideas about how to do the death scenes and um, how to do the screams. I mean, it was all, it was cheeseball, but it was cheeseball with a great deal of intent. And I kind of enjoyed that. What was the name of the movie again? It was called um, uh, A Study in Terror. A Study in Terror, yeah. 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 
Classic. <laughs> we'll keep with, we'll keep with Basil Rathbone as, no, as Sherlock Holmes. That's right. I'll stick with Columbo. I'm good. Yeah, right. Columbo's good. Okay, talk to you soon. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.